Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're in chapter 14 of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This is titled Cultivating Healthy Mental States, Loving Kindness, Compassion, Sympathetic Joy, and Equanimity. These are called the Brahma Viharas and Gautama Buddha taught them in order to transform the mind away from certain pollutions of mind and helping you to move closer to this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently, no longer experiencing any discontent feelings. They're called the Brahma Viharas because during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were Brahmin priests who were practicing Hinduism and those people still exist today and they refer to God as Brahma. So Brahma Viharas, the word Brahma means God and Vihara means kind of a dwelling or an abode. Whether you have belief in God or understanding of God or not isn't necessarily important for this conversation, but I would just like to help you understand where this term Brahma Vihara comes from. While Gautama Buddha shared multiple teachings during his life, he observed that these were being taught during his lifetime and he knew they were important for the path to enlightenment. So the Brahma Viharas or these dwellings to bring you closer to God are being taught as part of the path to enlightenment and in the Buddhist teachings to help you transform the mind away from very specific pollutions and providing you remedies in order to move the mind closer to this enlightened mental state. One way to think about the Buddha's teachings are that the Buddha is like a medical doctor and he sees certain problems or certain symptoms in the unenlightened mind and he's providing a remedy or a solution or a prescription to remedy that problem in the mind. So what you're going to hear from me today in our class is I'm going to explain what the four Brahma Viharas are in detail, explaining what each one is. I'm going to explain what they actually remedy in terms of the unwholesome qualities of mind that are eliminated in terms of arising these wholesome qualities to eliminate these unwholesome qualities. And then I'm going to share with you how to actually cultivate each individual mental state of the Brahma Viharas. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly, we're about a little bit over halfway through our group learning program. We're going to continue throughout the rest of this program sharing chapter by chapter on Sundays. And then on Wednesday, we do meditation together. And then around the beginning of November, we're going to be doing a special series called the Retreat Series, which is eight individual classes over a two-month period, which are classes from the U.S. Retreat that I taught this summer. And the classes that are unique in that retreat, I'm going to be sharing them online November and December so that you can learn those eight new classes that I taught in the U.S. retreat. 
So again, welcome. Let me just switch over to providing some visual aids to help you guys see what it is that I'm sharing with you today. This first Brahma Vihara that I would like to share with you is called loving kindness. This is active goodwill towards all beings without judgment, a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. This is where you don't have any ill will or any hatred towards any beings whatsoever. And this is without judgment. This is not judging whether someone is deserving of your goodwill or is deserving of your interest to see them be well. But this is you cultivating in the mind this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well and having goodwill towards all beings. What this healthy mental state is remedying is the unwholesome quality of anger, hatred, ill will, and all the lesser versions like frustration, irritation, annoyance, and dislike. Because the cause of discontentedness is craving desire attachment. This is the mental longing with a strong eagerness where the mind is chasing after the objects of its affection. And if it gets what it wants, it's going to experience those pleasant feelings, happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. But those feelings of pleasant feelings are just temporary because the mind is basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition those pleasant feelings are going to eventually fade. And then if the mind doesn't get the objects of its affection, if that strong eagerness, that craving, desire, attachment, the wants and expectations aren't fulfilled, then the unenlightened mind will typically move to anger, hatred, ill will, or these lesser versions like frustration, irritation, annoyance, or dislike. And then we typically push away the thing that is uncomfortable for us thinking that that's going to solve the problem. This is called aversion when we push away people and situations that are uncomfortable and we feel like that's actually going to solve the problem. But this is because of the wrong view in the mind that we think that their actual problem is this other person or this situation. So the unenlightened mind pushes this away with aversion thinking that's going to solve the problem. But then the cycle just keeps continuing where the mind craves something. If it gets the object of its affection, it gets these pleasant feelings. If it doesn't get the objects of its affection, it has these painful feelings, which includes anger, hatred, ill will. And this is where the mind can become aggressive or hostile or bitter. There's unskillful conduct that is usually associated with this anger, hatred, ill will, or these lesser versions arising. And this is where we damage our personal and professional relationships. That as that anger, hatred, ill will, or frustration, irritation, annoyance, or dislike arises, it motivates this unskillful conduct where now we're bitter, we're harsh, we're hostile, we're aggressive with others. And if we haven't pushed the people away ourselves with aversion, our conduct surely can push people away and make relationships a real struggle and difficult. So by arising loving kindness, where we have this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, and this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment, then we can function with other beings in a very polite, kind, friendly, and respectful way, and we can see our personal and professional relationships improve. This is where the Buddhist teachings aren't based on belief. It's learning these teachings. You reflect on them and see the truth in them. And then you practice them and you see the truth for yourself that your relationships are improving. The condition of your mind is improving because now you start cultivating these healthy mental states and it helps you to now function in ways that you didn't function before. 
one of the ways to think about this path to enlightenment is that the mind is gotten to a point where it's very easy to go down this path of anger or this path of hostility and bitterness because it's a well-beaten path. But what you're doing is you're kind of rewiring the mind and you're beating down this new path, this new way of being. So in the past where maybe something happened that you were uncomfortable with and you didn't get the objects of your affection, it was really easy for the mind to go down this path of anger and hostility and bitterness or frustration or irritation or what have you. But what you're trying to do is you're now trying to arise this loving kindness in the mind and these other healthy mental states so that now you can go down this new path and you can forge this new path that becomes natural for the mind. But initially to do that transformation, it's quite a bit of a challenge because the mind's so used to going down this other path of anger, hatred, frustration, irritation, bitterness, hostility, and all of that. But the more you turn around and you walk towards the struggle and you walk towards the challenge and you beat down this new path where now you get rid of the bushes and the stickers and all of the the branches that are in this path and you get this well-worn path where in a situation where you don't get the objects of your affection you can understand that that's the real problem and then no longer chase after the objects of your affection and rather than being angry that you didn't get what you were interested in you can then just have this loving kindness and compassion which we're going to talk about in a moment for the beings that are involved and rather than push them away you can just smile be thankful be polite kind friendly and respectful but it's going to take time to transform the mind towards this new way of being as you are kind of rewiring the mind and as you get this new path beaten down and you get this well-worn path that the mind is naturally moving towards loving kindness then this old way of being where it was angry and hostile and bitter gets overgrown and the mind is less and less likely to go down that path and travel that path because it's actually more difficult to go down that path and the mind sees the wisdom of that every time you walk down the path of anger and hostility it turns into something unwholesome for you and then you start gradually learning that moving down this new path this new way of being where you're functioning in a wholesome way where you're polite kind friendly and respectful having loving kindness for all beings this becomes more and more comfortable and you like this way better and you see the results are more wholesome so what you're doing in order to cultivate this loving kindness this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well this active goodwill is to practice loving kindness meditation you cultivate this in meditation on a consistent ongoing basis meditation is a dedicated active purposeful training session where you're eliminating certain unwholesome qualities and you're arising certain wholesome qualities so in loving kindness meditation the unwholesome qualities that you're eliminating is anger hatred and ill will and then by eliminating that you're arising this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well this active goodwill and we do loving kindness meditation through various affirmations where you start with may i be peaceful may i be safe may i be well may i be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes because you need to start with i by starting with i you cultivate this loving kindness for this being that you are now and then you expand these rings into other groups 
particularly people that you currently have anger, hatred, and ill will towards, or certain individuals or certain groups of people. Because it's really difficult for you to have loving kindness and compassion for others if you don't have that for yourself first. So you cultivate in meditation this loving kindness for yourself, this being that you are now, and then you expand this further and further to other beings. And this will not only help you to practice loving kindness with others, but if there's any kind of negative self-talk or any hostility or bitterness towards this being that you are now, this can all be eliminated resentment and hostility towards this being who you are. Oftentimes there's this negative self-talk in the mind that makes it very difficult and very challenging for you to have a loving and kind relationship with yourself or this being who you are right now. So by doing loving kindness meditation and starting with I, this being who you are now, you cultivate this more healthy relationship with yourself and you see how that improves your thinking and you rewire the mind and go down this more wholesome path of loving kindness and this genuine interest in seeing yourself be well. And then as you develop that and see how that improves the state of mind by cultivating this healthy mental state, you're then able to practice that with other people more readily. And because this is gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress, you're not going to see immediate results the first time you do the meditation or just learning this intellectually. You're not going to be able to go out today and treat everybody in your life with loving kindness. There's probably people in your life right now where you are kind of hostile and you are bitter and you are kind of maybe resentful towards them for various reasons. So you're not going to be able to just snap your fingers and turn the mind and transform the mind to go down this new path. It's going to take this gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress where you're gradually arising loving kindness in the mind more and more through meditation. And you do that consistently over a consistent long-term period of time. And then as you're doing this in meditation, you're also practicing loving kindness in daily life because you can't meditate your way to loving kindness. You can't meditate your way to enlightenment. You need to be practicing the teachings outside of meditation as well. So you cultivate loving kindness and meditation. This is kind of like filling up the gas tank, so to speak. And then when you go out in the world, you use mindfulness and right effort in order to now arise this loving kindness in your daily life as you interact with other beings. What right mindfulness is, a general way to think about it, is awareness of mind, being aware of what's in the mind. This path to enlightenment is a purification of the mind where you're eliminating unwholesome qualities and arising wholesome qualities. So you need right mindfulness or awareness of mind to be aware of what is in the mind at any given time. And also you cultivate this through breathing mindfulness meditation, which is a primary form of meditation that we practice in this path to enlightenment. So with this right mindfulness or this awareness of mind, you can identify the unwholesome quality of anger, hatred, ill will, frustration, irritation, annoyance, dislike. You can observe this arising in the mind and then you can apply right effort to eliminate that unwholesome quality and arise the wholesome quality of loving kindness. This is the direct transformation that you're 
doing as part of your daily practice. That in your daily life, as you observe any kind of anger, hatred, or will, or these lesser versions arising, if you know the solution is loving kindness, this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, and this active goodwill, then you can apply right effort, the effort to abandon these unwholesome qualities and arise the wholesome. So this is how you now take the loving kindness and you make it part of the Eightfold Path because the Buddha mentions loving kindness as part of the Eightfold Path, but it's this Eightfold Path that is the direct path to enlightenment. So we're cultivating the loving kindness in meditation and then in daily life, we're observing the mind and whenever we see these unwholesome qualities arise, we apply the right effort to eliminate them and arise the wholesome. This is where having a detailed understanding of the Brahma-viharas and the problems or the challenges that the unrelated mind experiences, then you know the prescription or you know the remedy, you know the solution of how to transform the mind away from those unwholesome qualities. Because as I mentioned, you can't learn in a class and immediately click the fingers and go out and practice loving kindness with every single being in the world. You're gonna to need to practice the teachings. So right now you're doing the learning part in class and then you start reflecting on this and you start seeing how, yes, loving kindness is the exact opposite of anger, hatred, and ill will. And you start reflecting on how practicing loving kindness in your daily life through your personal and professional relationships will improve your relationships. And this can come into your intentions, your speech, and your action. And you can see through reflection that yes, this would be a better way to live, that you're done with being hostile and aggressive and bitter towards people. Even though you know it's gonna take time to transform that, you've at least made the conscious decision that you're done with interacting with people in that way. And you're gonna gradually move towards this better way of life. So as you see through learning, through reflecting that yes, this is the truth, now you start practicing this in daily life where you start practicing loving kindness meditation and you start practicing mindfulness where when you're aware of the anger arising in the mind, you can then apply right effort to cut that off, let it go and arise loving kindness. So this is the first Brahma Vihara. This is the way to arise this loving kindness and get rid of these unwholesome qualities of anger, hatred, ill will, and all those lesser versions. Then the next one that I'll share with you before I open up to any questions on these two is compassion. Compassion is the concern for the misfortune of others. This is a very important mental state to have in terms of cultivating healthy mental states because as we understand in the teachings of the Buddha, we need to practice this middle way. Whereas if we're craving and desiring for everyone to be a certain way in the world and we're really upset every time we see somebody's in an unfortunate situation, this is gonna cause our own discontentedness because we have this mental longing and strong eagerness, this yearning for all beings to be peaceful or all beings to be safe or all beings to be free of poverty or free of famine and things like this. If we're craving for all beings to always be a certain way, this is craving permanence. And that's going to lead to our own discontentedness because it's not possible because of the universal truth of impermanence for all beings to be in a fortunate situation. It's not possible for that to occur. So if we crave and we're on one side of things, then it's going to cause our own discontentedness. But also if we're over here on this side, 
where we were indifferent and we didn't care what other people experienced. We didn't care about the misfortune of others. We didn't care when we saw somebody in some unfortunate situation. That's not going to promote a healthy mental state either. So what compassion is doing is helping you bring the mind to the middle where you're not worried and have anxiety and overactive mind and worried about other people's misfortunes, but you have concern where when you see somebody in an unfortunate situation, you have concern for them. And maybe you take action in order to practice helping this person through generosity or something else that you might do, but maybe not. Maybe you're unable to help this person. And that's okay too, because you're not going to be permanently able to help every single person in every situation. But the mind at least needs to come to the middle where it has concern for the misfortune of others. It's not craving and yearning and longing to help every single person that you interact with in every single day, but you're also not indifferent and you could care less what people are experiencing on a given day. Instead, you bring the mind to the middle where there's this concern for the misfortune of others. And what this remedies is it remedies the unwholesome quality of indifference, being indifferent towards others, and it helps to remedy the worry and the anxiety that the mind might have when it's experiencing and observing others having misfortune. The way that you cultivate compassion is your loving kindness meditation is going to arise loving kindness and then as the mind is practicing that more and more there's a tendency for compassion to come into the mind but the mind can actually be on one side and it's kind of swinging back and forth between craving compassion and helping every single being and then being over here where you feel kind of indifferent and you got to find this middle and the way that you do that is the same way that i described practicing loving kindness is that you observe the mind through right mindfulness, that you have awareness of mind. And when you see indifference towards others' misfortune, or when you see worry or anxiety towards others' misfortune, you realize that the mind is not in the middle at that point. And with that mindfulness or awareness of mind, identifying that unwholesome quality, you then apply right effort which is to eliminate the unwholesome quality of indifference or worry or anxiety. And now you cultivate this wholesome quality where you can just have concern. So if you feel the mind pulling and longing and yearning to help every single being that you encounter, you know this is craving. So in order to practice, you would cut that off and let it go and just sit with a concern and just know that even though you're capable of helping that person in the situation, if you feel the mind yearning and longing and pulling in the direction of that, maybe what's more important for your practice in that moment is to cut that off and let it go and bring the mind to the middle where you can just have concern for this person's misfortune. Through practicing mindfulness, you become aware of these unwholesome qualities arising and then you can apply right effort to arise the wholesome. And in this case, we're talking about compassion, the concern for the misfortune of others. And then more and more, the mind gets used to being in the middle. So rather than going down this well-beaten path of indifference or this well-beaten path of worry or anxiety, you're rewiring the mind. You're 
making this new path, this new pathway, where now through this rewiring of the mind, you understand that indifference and worry and anxiety isn't going to lead to peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So you get used to more and more functioning with this concern and being in the middle. And then this feels more and more natural for the mind to be in this middle where it can practice the concern for the misfortune of others without having craving to help every single being and without having indifference as well. So let me pause here and give you guys an opportunity to ask any questions that you like on these first two Brahma Viharas, loving kindness and compassion. The way that you ask questions is you put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. The moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Um, yes, sir. Tonka had a question in Zoom. So those mental states are different than feelings. They don't arise and disappear, but are always there for the enlightened mind, sir? Yes, that's correct. For the enlightened mind, these are just always going to be there. They're always present, all of these healthy mental states. But as you're working your way towards enlightenment, there's going to be times where you feel lots of loving kindness and you feel like you can practice it well. And then there's other times where there's going to be anger, hatred, ill will, and the lesser versions arise. But what you're doing is more and more you're transforming the mind to now function with this loving kindness. So where you cut off and let go of that anger, hatred, and ill will and arise of loving kindness, the mind gets used to more and more functioning with loving kindness to then eventually you've cultivated it so well in all parts of your life that it's just always there. For an enlightened being, loving kindness doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. But in the process of getting to that point, you're going to see the arising of loving kindness, you're going to see it fade away. And where you see it fade away, that's where you then apply right effort to cut off and let go of the anger, hatred, ill will, and you arise this loving kindness towards all beings. And then eventually you get in this natural way of functioning where you just always have loving kindness and compassion in every situation. It's just so easy and effortless for you. But at the beginning, like I mentioned, you're forging this new path. So it's going to take some effort to eliminate these unwholesome qualities and arise this wholesome qualities. But as you do, it gets more and more natural, more and more effortless for you to function with this natural state of these healthy mental states, such as loving kindness and compassion and the others that I'm going to share with you today as well. Thank you, sir. Uh, Tony has his hand raised. Let's go to him for his question. Uh, in the loving kindness meditation, uh, we do those, those, uh, those uh, mantras that, uh, but so, so when we get into a situation uh, when we're not being unskillful and, and our mind, uh, and, and not in meditation, but the mind goes off into a, to a, a story about disliking a person or whatever, uh, would that be a time that we'd, we'd cut that off and then we'd go to do mantras to, uh, uh, not the I call the mantras, the, uh, uh, may I be kind, or may this person be kind, and so on and so forth. Is that way to uh, overcome come the un unwholesome uh, thoughts? Yes, those affirmations can be really helpful in meditation. So you can do them in meditation as a standalone practice. But then in daily life, say somebody cuts you off in traffic and you immediately feel this anger starting to arise. You can learn to cut that off and let it go and just may you be well, may you be safe, and just 
let them go. Don't have this, you know, honking of the horn and this aggression and this hostility. You've got to learn to cut that off. That's moving from this well-beaten path of anger and hostility that the mind is used to going down and saying, nope, I'm going to do something different here. I'm going to go down this path of just having a genuine interest for seeing this being be well. And then this becomes more natural that the mind in the future, as you do this repeatedly over time, when someone cuts you off, you're like, oh, of course, may you be well. And you just have this genuine interest in seeing them be well. There's no hostility that arises whatsoever in that situation. But that's the transformation that needs to gradually occur. So when you have spot it with mindfulness and you observe that unwholesome qualities arising, that's where you cut it off, let it go. And you can use those same affirmations for meditation in daily life, either repeat them in the mind or even say them out loud as you need them in a situation where maybe someone cuts you off in traffic or there's something else going on. So there's no problem when you see that your mind is becoming hostile and aggressive, either in person or even if you're isolated in your car and somebody cuts you off and you cut that off and let it go, this is rewiring the mind to no longer go down this path of anger. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, Jan has her hand raised. Let's go to her for her question, sir. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, Teacher David, there are um, persons who have physically harmed the body in the past. And so practicing to find loving kindness towards these individuals is a great challenge. I wonder if you might offer some guidance in this situation. And when, when someone has been harmed physically, frightened and so forth, and there's quite a bit of trauma. Um, I believe that it would be wise to cultivate loving kindness so that one doesn't suffer those effects going forward. I, I would, you, would you say that's correct? And any guidance you could offer would be appreciated. Yes, I agree with that. You know, if people have harmed us in the past, either physically or verbally or sexually or some other way, then as long as the mind's harboring this anger, hatred, and a will, it's only hurting you or this being who we are right now. It's only harming our own mind. So cultivating loving kindness and compassion is a way for us to release that from the mind and then get to a healthy mental state for ourselves. Cultivating these healthy mental states doesn't mean we're going to go back to that person and have a loving and kind relationship with them and try to reforge a better relationship because that person is most likely not in a position to do that. And it's not necessarily wise for you to go back and relive that through having contact necessarily with this person. So whether this happened five years, 10 years, 20 years ago, if the mind's still holding on to any anger, hatred, or will, or lesser versions like resentment and other things like this, it's only gonna hinder your own enlightenment. So the approach to cultivating loving kindness is exactly the same, is that you cultivate it through meditation, and then when you see the thoughts arising of past events, you cut those off and you let them go and you arise this loving kindness, realizing that it's in the past, that you're making wise decisions to no longer associate with that person and that harm isn't gonna to come to you any longer. You're just trying to rewire the mind so that these repetitive thoughts of the experiences that you had in the past 
aren't recurring, but they're going to recur for a period of time until you do enough breathing mindfulness meditation and until you do enough loving kindness meditation, until you do enough mindfulness where you're aware of these thoughts arising and you cut it off and let it go through applying right effort. Doing this gradually over time, doing enough of this, it accumulates to the point where the mind is fully transformed and those thoughts don't arise in the mind any longer. You have the memories of those things that occurred. You know that they occurred, but they no longer arise in a harmful way and they impact you in a harmful way because you've transformed any anger, hatred, and ill will into just having this active goodwill towards this being and having this compassion, this concern for their misfortune. And you've now decided to move on and no longer allow this experience that occurred to burden you in your current life and in the present moment. So it's still the same thing, meditating, having awareness of mind through right mindfulness and applying right effort to cut off and let go of any unwholesome thoughts that are arising and then applying the effort to arise these wholesome qualities, these healthy mental states of loving kindness, compassion, and potentially others. Uh, it does not appear there are any other questions at this time, sir. All right, so let's move on to the next set of healthy mental states that are part of the Brahma Viharas. There's four total here, so these are the next two. The next two are sympathetic joy and equanimity. Sympathetic joy is the joy for other success, even if you didn't contribute to it. Because oftentimes what the unenlightened mind wants to do is because of its craving, desires, attachments, chasing after the objects of its affection, when it sees somebody else being successful, then the mind wants to experience and arises this envy and jealousy. Or if there's somebody that does something successful in your life, you might arise this pride that comes into the mind where the mind becomes arrogant and prideful. Maybe if your children are successful, maybe there's this pride that arises. So sympathetic joy is going to remedy both sides of this. Whereas if, say you have a job and there's a certain promotion that you really want, you have this as an object of your affection and you don't get that promotion. But say somebody else gets the promotion. And now there's this envy or this jealousy that arises. And now that comes out through your intention, speech, and actions when you interact with this person who's gotten this promotion. This is going to damage your personal and professional relationships. Or say that you really want to go on a certain vacation or holiday, but you're unable to do that. You're unable to afford it. And you see somebody else doing that. And then you become envious or jealous. And now this affects your relationship because it comes through in your intentions, your speech, and your actions. So by arising this joy for other success, even if you didn't contribute to it, transforms the mind away from this envy and jealousy and moves it towards having joy for other success. And as you're doing this, again, there's this transformational period where an enlightened being, they're just always going to feel joy for other success. But in the process of doing that and getting to that point where it's just always there in the mind, you're going to probably have experiences where you really wanted something badly, somebody else got it, you feel some envy and jealousy arise, but you see that with right mindfulness. You identify this unwholesome quality arising, and then you just put together the words, you smile and you say, hey, I'm really joyful that you accomplished that. That's wonderful that you were able to accomplish that. And maybe that's what you're practicing externally, but internally the mind might still feel this envy and jealousy. 
And that's quite normal as you're gradually moving towards this sympathetic joy. But at least if you can put the words together, if you can put a smile on your face, then gradually you're moving towards this better path. You're rewiring the mind to not go down this path of envy and jealousy, where in the past, Maybe you felt it in the mind. Maybe your intention, speech, and actions were polluted with what you were experiencing and you damaged your relationships. Okay, that's where you were in the past. But now, understanding the problems or the challenges of envy and jealousy, and now you know the solution, which is sympathetic joy, when you feel that envy and jealousy starting to arise, now at least your intentions, your speech, and your actions aren't being outwardly motivated by this envy and jealousy. But instead, you arise this joy for other success, even if you didn't contribute to it, and you try to practice that. Even though internally you might feel otherwise, you just try to put together the words, you try to put together a smile, and then gradually this becomes more and more natural for you, where you're able to do that because you've gone down this path of sympathetic joy more and more readily, and the mind just naturally functions that way. And then the other side of this is if the mind isn't envy or jealous, if you've experienced some type of success or maybe your child or your partner or maybe a student or somebody around you accomplishes something, maybe there's this pride that arises in the mind. And you know, we're often taught to have pride, but pride comes from arrogance. It comes from conceit. This is an unwholesome quality because the unelated mind is going to tend to want to put itself above others with pride, even if somebody else has accomplished this that's close to you. Or there's also people who we put ourselves below others. Both of this is coming from the unwholesome quality or the fetter of conceit. And this needs to be eliminated in order to experience enlightenment. As long as the mind is putting itself above or below others, then you're going to have difficulties in relationships. When you're putting yourself above others with pride and arrogance and conceit and talking down to people, that's going to affect your personal and professional relationships. But also when you put yourself below others, the mind is uncalm, it's unsteady, and you're not able to interact with somebody in a wholesome way because you're feeling like you're below others. So you need to look at all beings as equal, which is part of the next Brahma Vihara, and this will help you to practice where you're not being prideful. So when you have a child or a coworker or a student or your spouse accomplishes something, then you could just have joy and be humble in that joy that you don't need to go out and profess to everybody, you know, look what I accomplished or look what my children accomplished or look what my life partner accomplished by putting this out there in such a big way. This is the arrogance and the conceits or the pride coming through. And this is going to hinder your relationships. While we're oftentimes taught to be proud of what we do, you can actually instead transform that to just having joy for the success that either you or others have accomplished and practicing this joy in a humble way. And that would be a way to practice in a more enlightened way. And again, the way that you accomplish that is through right mindfulness, being aware whenever this envy, jealousy, or pride arises, and then applying the right effort to eliminate those unwholesome qualities and arise this sympathetic joy. So where you feel the mind moving to this envy, jealousy, or pride, if you know the solution, if you know the remedy, if you know the antidote, if you know the prescription that the Buddha is providing, then 
you can start arising this sympathetic joy where you have joy for other success even if you didn't contribute to it. And then as you practice that more and more, being aware of these unwholesome qualities, cutting that off, letting it go, or rising the wholesome, sympathetic joy, then you're rewiring the mind, you're walking down this path, more naturally able to practice sympathetic joy in all situations. And then lastly, the last of the Brahma Viharas in these healthy mental states is equanimity. There's two aspects to equanimity that I'll share with you. The first one is this mental calmness, this composure, this evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations. And then there's this treating everyone impartially, which I'll share in a moment. This mental calmness, composure, evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations, is how the mind can remain calm and peaceful in all situations, regardless of what's happening in any given situation. But as long as there's craving, desire, attachment in there for life to be a certain way or for things to happen a certain way, it's going to be really challenging to practice equanimity. So that's why breathing mindfulness meditation is so important to knock down the craving, desire, attachments. By knocking that down, then the mind can become more calm, composed, and having evenness of temper, and especially in difficult situations. One of the reasons why this is so important is, have you ever experienced a situation where something occurred and the mind got all shaken up, it got unstable, and you started making decisions that made the situation worse? Because the mind was unstable, because it was uncalm, you lacked mindfulness or awareness of mind, and you lacked concentration or focus or singleness of mind, and then you lacked access to the wisdom to make wiser and wiser decisions to improve the situation. And because the mind was uncalm, there was no mindfulness, there was no concentration, you lacked the ability to access wisdom, you made unwholesome decisions or unwise decisions that created a worse situation. So say you get a call from your child's school that they've broken their arm or they fell down or they've gotten bad grades or they got into a fight. If right away you get all bent out of shape and your mind is uncalm and you jump into the car and rush to the school, you might get in a car accident and make the situation worse because now you're in the hospital and you can't help your child. Or you got really excited or elated about something. You allowed the mind to go into this thrill and this euphoria and you trip and fall or you drop your mobile phone or something like this and you break your mobile phone. These are all the unwholesome results of us allowing our mind to become uncalm and unsteady, not having this equanimity where the mind is calm, composed, having evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. So what you're remedying here with equanimity is this restlessness of mind, this worry, this anxiety, this overactive mind. Because as long as the mind is restless, worried, having anxiety or having overactivity of mind, the mind's gonna be uncalm, you're not going to be able to have awareness of mind or mindfulness. You're not going to have concentration or focus. And then you're going to lack the ability to access wisdom and apply that wisdom to making wise decisions. And as long as you're making unwise decisions, there's going to be unwholesome results. So what you would like to do is get to the point where the mind can practice being calm and compose, evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations, and arising this more and more readily so that the mind is always there doing that. And that comes from knocking down the craving, desire, attachment, but also observing 
through mindfulness that whenever the mind is restless, worried, having anxiety or overactivity, you know that that's problematic, that you know that those are unwholesome qualities, and then you actively apply right effort to arise equanimity, knowing that mental calmness, composure, and evenness of temper is what's going to keep the mind in that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So when you see difficult situations occurring in your life because of decisions that you've made, which is everything we experience in our life is because of the decisions we made. So when there are certain decisions that we make and you see this difficult situation occurring right away, you should think calmness, composure, evenness of temper, even though it's going to be challenging for you to practice that because you're still transforming the mind and moving down this better way of life and you're rewiring the mind. It's going to be challenging for you to do that. But the more you arise through right effort, this quality of equanimity, the easier it will be, the more natural it will feel, the more effortless that it will be in order for you to practice equanimity in all situations. So this is how you arise, this calmness, composure, evenness of temper, is that when you see difficult situations, you're just always interested in ensuring that you maintain the calmness because you know that that's going to lead to having mindfulness, concentration, and being able to access wisdom and now apply wise decisions in this difficult situation in order to remedy it and bring it to a more peaceful resolution. The other aspect of equanimity is treating everyone impartially or fairly or equally because the root word of equanimity is equal, right? We're treating all beings equally or impartially because as long as the mind is putting yourself above others or below people, you're going to be shaken up and the mind's not going to be able to function in a way that treats everyone impartially. There's going to be this arrogance or this ego that's coming through affecting your personal and professional relationships. So you would like to get to a point where you're functioning in a way where you're treating all beings the same, that there's this politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect towards all beings. If you've ever been in a situation where you felt like you were above somebody and you're looking down on them, you might have been talking with arrogance or hostility. You might have been looking down to them and speaking in a demeaning way. And then when you're around somebody who you look up to, now you have to completely change and almost the mind short circuits and you have to change the way you interact and you speak to this person because now you no longer see yourself above them, you see yourself below them. And now you have to speak in a different way. And this really wears on the mind. It really burdens the mind. It takes a lot of effort to constantly be evaluating. Am I above this person or am I below this person? Because I speak to people above me in this way and I speak to people below me in this way. And this is a real burden to the mind. It wears on the mind. It takes a lot of energy to do that. But an enlightened being is going to speak to all people and interact with all people in exactly the same way. Their life practice is permanent. So they're going to practice right intention, right speech, and right action, for example, with all beings equally. They're going to treat all beings equally. While there's different people in our society that perform different roles, we're all equal. I know that other people might not think this way and they might not interact this way in the world, but an enlightened being is going to think this way and interact this way. Where maybe like a president or a king or a prime minister in a country performs a certain role, 
but maybe there's other people who people maybe don't look at as favorably. Maybe people who have other jobs that people consider to be low or, you know, kind of lower than what a president or prime minister or a king does. Even though other people look at it that way and they kind of look at it as this pecking order, the way that you can function in order to eliminate any arrogance or ego that might exist in your mind is you function in a way where you treat all beings equally. And this way, your mind doesn't have to go through that burden and that effort to figure out, is this person above me or below me? And you just treat all beings equally, practicing things like right intention, right speech, and right action with all beings. And then your life practice becomes permanent. Maybe you speak to your child as yes, sir, yes, ma'am, or no, ma'am, no, sir. And maybe you also speak to the president of your country as yes, sir, yes, ma'am, so forth and so on. In this way, the mind can be at ease. It can be relaxed. It can be comfortable. It can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you're treating all beings equally. This is treating everyone impartially. And it's the same thing. The way that you arise this in the mind is through mindfulness. Whenever you observe that the mind has arrogance or ego and you observe that you're not treating people impartially or equally, then you apply the effort to fix that. Through your intention, speech, and actions, you address this through modifying your conduct, where before you might have gone down this path of ego and arrogance and treating people a certain way through your intention, speech, and actions, you cut that off, let it go, and now you forge this new way of being where you start functioning around people where you're treating everyone equally. And of course, there's this transformation process where you're not gonna immediately be able to do that with everybody, but you work towards that goal, and then it becomes easier and easier for you to do that. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have on sympathetic joy and equanimity. Remember, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically and ask your question directly. Yes, sir. Uh, Tonka had a question on Zoom. If sympathetic joy arises and we have excitement in the body, should it be cut off since excitement is conditioned feeling? Yes. When you feel that conditioned excitement, arising and you're noticing it in the body because of the bodily sensation that's the first aspect of right mindfulness which is those four foundations of mindfulness if you can observe the bodily sensations and cut it off and let it go there that's the ideal but then if you observe that it becomes a feeling in the mind you can have cut it off there as well and then there's affecting the condition of the mind and the mental objects that you can cut off as well and as you do that more and more readily and you transform the mind eventually you will have eliminated the craving desire attachments that are arising those conditioned pleasant feelings which lead to the conditioned painful feelings and the neither painful nor pleasant eventually you'll have eliminated enough of those craving desire attachments where those conditioned feelings will no longer arise anymore and this is how you know that the mind is becoming liberated it's becoming liberated from those strong feelings the mind is moving to peace to enlightenment but it's a gradual transformation of accumulating enough experiences where the mind has done this where it's knocked down and eliminated the craving desire attachments that are causing it yes sir tonka has her hand raised let's go to her for a question sir thank you I think that I have a trouble understanding uh, joy, what joy means. Like to me, joy is excitement. At least, um, I don't know, maybe I'm not understanding the terms correctly. So if you could elaborate on joy. 
Sure. I share this in chapter four of volume one. You can see some there, but I'll share it with you here as well. The way that I describe joy is it's not a conditioned feeling. Happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, these are conditioned feelings based on craving that when you get the objects of your affection, there's this happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria that arises. It's temporary. It arises, it changes, and it fades away. The way that I describe joy is a mental state, that it's just present, that it's not based on anything specific, that it's just always there. So that there's no conditioned feeling here, it's a mental state of having joy. So somebody can be happy, for example, that their enemy has failed, right? This can include ill will. Someone can be happy for that, right? But you can't be joyful and having this mental state of joy when there's ill will and hate there. There's the arising of happiness, excitement, and elation changing and fading away, but the joy is just going to be present there as a mental state that is able to be practiced unattached to any specific thing. So we're practicing joy and allowing it to permeate in the mind and just always be present. So teacher David, um, do we, uh, people that are not enlightened yet, do we experience joy or we just experience happiness and excitement and chill? There can be periods of joy where it's not attached to any specific thing and you just wake up and you're like, oh, I'm just so joyful. Not because it's sunny outside, but the mind is just joyful. If it's sunny out, it's raining out, the mind is just joyful. You can experience periods of time where there's this mental state of joy, but eventually it'll fade away because it's not permanent yet. The mind hasn't been totally transformed. There's still pollutions of mind there. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to expand that where the mind is joyful for longer and longer periods of time and it's not affected by any conditions such as craving, anger, and ignorance. So when all the craving, anger, and ignorance is gone, the mind is enlightened, the joy is going to be there permanently. But even in that first, second, and third stage of enlightenment, there's still pollution of mind that exists. So the joy is going to be temporary. But you can experience what that's like and then get used to practicing that more and more and more. So where you observe that the mind is joyful, unattached to any specific thing, then you know that that is pure joy, that the mind is just joyful because it's joyful. Where you notice that the mind is happy because I got a piece of chocolate cake or I'm happy because it's sunny outside. That's the happiness, excitement, elation. But the joy is not attached to anything specific. And you can experience that. And this is where I talk about as you're progressing on the path to enlightenment, you can get these glimpses of what enlightenment is like, but you just get glimpses of it. You kind of get these windows of time, maybe for a few minutes or a few hours or a few days, maybe even eventually a few weeks, maybe even eventually a few months where you experience, wow, the mind is just joyful all the time. It's so peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy just all the time. But then because there's still some certain amount of craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, then the mind goes back to feeling angry or frustrated or irritated or these lesser versions. And then over time, you just expand the amount of time that the mind is experiencing peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy and you're getting these glimpses along the way for longer and longer periods of time until eventually one, two, three years, you've had nothing 
but peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And this is where you'll know that the mind is enlightened. But of course, by that point, you're not bragging about it. You're not arrogant about it. You just know that you've eliminated discontentedness and you feel pleased about the decisions you've made in order to move down this direction of life and no longer experience discontentedness anymore. So yes, you will experience glimpses of joy at different times, but then it will diminish because you're not yet fully enlightened and there's some pollution that's coming into the mind and uh, allowing this joy to, to fade away. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Sir, when one is working on this equanimity and treating everyone equally, can there be a craving, desire, or attachment in the mind that can cause someone to look at themselves as above or below others? And if so, I'm assuming um, it would be wise then to try to identify that craving or desire and work on that and el eliminate that from the mind? Yes. Would that be correct? Yes, it's craving, desire, attachment that's motivating all this unskillfulness. And of course, it all comes back to the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality because the unenlightened mind lacks the wisdom to understand that craving, desire, attachment is such a problem. It lacks the wisdom to understand anger, hatred, ill will is such a problem. It lacks the wisdom of how to train itself in order to eliminate these pollutions and arise these wholesome qualities in the mind. So by arising the wisdom to understand that it's arrogance, it's conceit, it's this pride, it's this ego that is causing problems. And anytime you observe that the mind is wanting to be arrogant or egotistical, putting yourself above others, that's where with that mindfulness and awareness, you then apply right effort to cut it off and let it go and arise this equanimity and treating all beings equally and saying, no, 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 that's kind of arrogant of me. Let me not do that. Let me practice being humble here. So the mind's used to going down this path of arrogance and conceit and ego and putting yourself above others. And where you see that occurring and even the slightest little bit, even just in your thinking as you're driving down the road with yourself or as you're interacting with people at work or whatever, even you just see the slightest little hint of any arrogance you be diligent and dedicated to cut that off and let it go and now move the mind towards this equanimity where you look at all beings as equal and you be humble and realize that that's beneficial for your practice. Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. Tony has his hand raised. Let's go to him for his question, sir. Yes, Teacher David. Um, a few times this happened to me, I've been walking my dogs or walking the park or walking the woods or walking somewhere and, and, and I feel this this joy uh, in, in the meditation. I've been doing some meditation on joy. Would that be craving? Uh, it's sort of a it's sort of a happiness joy, but it's somewhat because of maybe because I'm walking in the woods with the dogs and it's the birds are chirping, et cetera, et cetera. So would that be considered uh, craving or it just happens to be? If there's a pleasant feeling arising in the mind, meaning I am now happy because I'm walking the dog and because I'm in the woods and because I hear the birds chirping, that's a conditioned feeling because now when the mind is not experiencing that, now it doesn't like that. So the craving, desire, attachment there would be walking the dog, 
the being in the woods and the and the birds. And if I get that, if I get the objects of my affection, then I'm going to be happy. But if I don't get that, if I'm not able to do that because it's raining outside, now I'm going to be sad and angry. If you see the mind doing that, that's a conditioned feeling, which is based on craving, desire, attachment, the wants and expectations of the mind. But if you're walking the dog and you're in the woods and the birds are chirping and you notice the mind is joyful, okay, and now let's just say it starts raining and you're like, oh, it's raining. Hmm, That's unfortunate. Maybe I should make my way home so I don't get wet. And then the mind is still joyful. Then you know that that joy is not based on any condition. So you observe the mind through mindfulness of what it's experiencing in any given time. If you can maintain the joy despite the opposite of what's occurring, then you know that it's not because of craving, desire, attachment, that that joy is in the mind. It's just joyful. It's just present. So you observe the mind through mindfulness in all these different situations. So if you observe something coming into the mind that you think is joy, okay, there's some joy. That's interesting. That feels nice. Okay. Uh, Let me not take pleasure in the joy. Let me just observe it. Okay, the birds are chirping in the woods with my dog. Oh, this is great. But then if it starts raining or, you know, something else happens or somebody walks by you and looks disgruntled and angry at you, but you're still joyful despite what's going on, then you know that that's unconditioned joy, that there is no condition that's causing the joy, that the mind is just joyful regardless of what's going on, despite what's going on. And by the way, since we're talking about joy, this is part of the seven factors of enlightenment. If you look in chapter three of volume one, I describe their joy in addition to explaining it in chapter four as well, because one of the factors of enlightenment is having this joy. And it's not to determine if you are enlightened, but it's a quality of mind that you need to arise in order to bring the mind to the middle. So the Buddha talks about when a mind is sluggish or dull. He says, practice the enlightenment factor of investigation, of energy and joy. And this brings the mind into the middle. And as it gets more and more comfortable and used to being in the middle, it will just always function that way. And then he talks about in the seven factors of enlightenment, where the mind is overactive and excited to practice tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And that's what brings the mind to the middle when the mind is excited and overactive. And then the first factor, which is mindfulness, he says, this is always useful. You should always be practicing mindfulness or awareness of mind. So by always practicing mindfulness or awareness of mind, when you see the mind is sluggish, you practice the enlightenment factor of investigation, energy, and joy. And then when you see that the mind is excited or overactive, you practice tranquility, concentration, equanimity. And then as you do that and you bring the mind into the middle more and more, an enlightened being is gonna be practicing all seven factors all the time in addition to all the other aspects of the teachings and they're doing this effortlessly but in order to transform the mind you have to take the active role of applying effort to bring the mind to the middle when it's sluggish and to bring the mind to the middle when it's excited and this will help the mind get into that groove and more and more it will just stay in that groove it won't pop out And that's where you get those glimpses of what enlightenment is like is when it's in this groove. And then when it pops out, you observe with mindfulness that the mind is angered or it's excited or what have you. And then you have the tools that you need to bring the mind back to the middle. 
That's what the Buddha is doing on this path to enlightenment is giving you these tools in which to invoke at any given time. So when you see the challenge in front of you, it might be certain factors of the seven factors of enlightenment, or it might be one of the Brahma Viharas, or it might be right intention, right speech, right action, or what have you. As you accumulate more and more wisdom of these teachings, and as you go forward in life and you see the challenges that you're facing, you invoke the various tools that you need at any given time. And then where you're struggling and you don't know how to do that or what the tools are, that's where you reach out to your teacher through Facebook posts, through asking questions in classes, through private message or through personal guidance. And you seek guidance from your teacher to help you understand what tools do you need to be aware of and use in any given situation. I have a question, uh, Teacher David. Um, I noticed that, you know, when you teach meditation, there are four basic um, ones that you mentioned. And the two most important ones, of course, being breath meditation and loving kindness. Now, loving kindness or metta is one of the four Brahma Vera's, but the other three, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, are there particular techniques that are used to develop these qualities? Or are there specific meditations that are used to develop these qualities? These other qualities aren't cultivated through meditation. They're cultivated through understanding the unwholesome quality and then applying right effort to arise the wholesome quality in a given situation. So it's kind of in the moment that you're arising these qualities. With loving kindness, you do cultivate it through meditation. And then compassion tends to kind of come into the mind because of that. But you still need to have mindfulness or awareness of mind, observe the unwholesome qualities, and then arise the wholesome through right effort in your daily life. There's no meditation to arise compassion directly or sympathetic joy or equanimity directly. Equanimity does come into the mind as you're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation. The mind learns to be more calm. By eliminating craving, desire, attachment in the mind, you start observing that sympathetic joy is easier to practice, equanimity is easier to practice, and so forth. So these two primary forms of meditation, breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, are eliminating the pollutions of mind that are hindering you from being able to practice loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. So those meditations are working to eliminate the pollutions that are hindering you from doing that and creating obstacles. But then in the moment, you still need to be observant with mindfulness of what the unwholesome qualities are, cut those off and let them go, and then arise with right effort the wholesome qualities. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, it does not appear we have any other questions at this time, sir. Okay, so this is everything related to the Brahma Viharas and these four healthy mental states that are taught as part of the Brahma Viharas. But in this chapter 14, I shared an additional mental state that isn't part of the Brahma Viharas that's important for you to learn and practice and make sure that you're cultivating in the mind. And we've discussed this at different times in our program and in the book, but here I would like to just highlight it so that you guys are understanding of this healthy mental state and that you're able to know what it is, what it remedies, and how to practice it. Because it's oftentimes very challenging for the unenlightened mind to practice a quality of mind like generosity. Generosity is so important for your practice, and without it, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. So while it's not part of the Brahma Viharas, it was important to include in this chapter in talking about cultivating healthy mental states. 
Generosity is a readiness in taking the action of frequently giving something more than is strictly necessary, such as time, effort, energy, financial support, and resources without any expectation of anything in return. This is you practicing helping your neighbor when they have trash blown across their yard and maybe you help them to put it into their trash bin. This is you maybe helping your neighbors take care of their animals while they're gone, perhaps, if they need help with that. Or maybe picking something up at a grocery store for somebody if they need that and you know that that's something that they could use. There's multiple ways to practice generosity. And you need to make this a daily occurrence in your life where you're just willing to do things in situations with your time, effort, energy, financial support, and resources without any expectation from anybody to get anything in return. When you're practicing giving and helping others on this ongoing basis in your comprehensive life practice, it's helping you to cultivate more of a caring mind and a compassionate mind. And doing this consistently through giving and sharing will help you to eliminate selfishness and these selfish desires of always wanting something for ourselves. Because the way that we're typically taught and the way that we function in the unenlightened state is I'm going to give $10 and I want something back that is equal to $10 or more than $10. Or I'm going to give something, I'm going to do something and I want something back in return for that. This is the mind's craving desire attachment, the mental longing and strong eagerness for something. As long as that's in there, the mind's going to continue to struggle and continue to have discontentedness because you're not always going to get what you want. So by practicing generosity, you're training the mind to eliminate craving desire attachment and eliminating selfish desires and selfishness. So part of the way of practice is to be ready and willing and taking the action to frequently give something more than is strictly necessary, such as your time, effort, energy, financial support, or resources. It doesn't mean that you give, 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 and you don't have anything for yourself because that would be craving itself. If you're craving to be generous and you're just giving unfiltered in every situation and now you lack resources to sustain your own life, that wouldn't be a wise decision. But also if you were selfishly holding on to things in such a way that you never shared with anybody and you always expected something in return for everything that you do, this isn't going to produce an enlightened mind either. So practicing this middle way is being willing to do things for others without any expectation in return. Something simple you can do is smile at people. You're not expecting them to smile back. You're not expecting them to be kind and friendly and respectful back, but you just smile and you're practicing giving your time, effort, and energy, right? Or when you're walking into a store, you might hold the door for somebody, even if it's a child, not just for old people, not just for a woman, but anybody, you can hold the door. Even if you're a woman, you can hold the door. Even if you're a man, you can hold the door. Even if you're a child, you can hold the door for others because you're already opening the door for yourself. It only takes a little bit more effort to just hold it for a little bit longer for somebody else to walk through. And this is generosity. You're not expecting a thank you. You're not expecting a smile, but you're just choosing to be generous to other people unattached without craving anything specific from that individual. 
This will help you to eliminate your craving, desire, attachment and promote a healthier mind through cultivating this healthy mental state. The Buddha shares multiple teachings about generosity. In fact, in this book series of 13 books, there's one book that's completely devoted to generosity with lots of different teachings from the Buddha explaining generosity and why to practice it, why it's important and how to practice it. It's book 13 in the book series. But there's this one teaching that has always been very impactful when I read it. So I'll share this with you in the words of the Buddha of what he explains is just one particular teaching around generosity. He says, monks, if beings knew, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would the stain of selfishness obsess them and take root in their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared it, if there were someone to share it with. But because beings do not know, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they eat without having given, and the stain of selfishness obsesses them and takes root in their minds. Let's look at this and help you understand what the Buddha is sharing here. What he's talking about is the results of giving and sharing, that beings do not know as he knows. Well, what he knows as part of his path to enlightenment is he observed his past lives and he knew that he was very generous in those past lives. And he talks about his generosity in those past lives and in his last life as being the primary thing in addition to all the other teachings that he learned, but one of the primary things that led to him being able to attain enlightenment on his own without the help and without guidance of teachers, that through his generosity in previous lives and in his last life, this led to him being able to attain enlightenment, thus eliminating craving, desire, attachment. So the results of giving and sharing that he knows that others don't know is the attainment of enlightenment. He understands this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that others aren't aware of, that others don't understand how peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy that the mind truly is in this enlightened mental state. Because others don't know about what this experience is like to experience enlightenment, they continue to allow this selfishness to obsess their mind and take roots in their mind. So he's encouraging people through the results of giving and sharing, that this is what leads to enlightenment. And by practicing generosity, you'll be able to eliminate selfish desires and selfishness, this craving, desire, attachment, in addition to practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and training the mind to let go. Generosity trains the mind to let go as well. Because what selfishness is, is holding on to things really tight and the mind doesn't want to let go. And now through practicing generosity on a consistent ongoing basis with your time, effort, energy, financial support and resources, you're training the mind to let go and give and share without any expectation of anything in return. And then when you see other teachings that the Buddha talks about, he talks about ensuring that you are whole as you practice generosity, that you can't just give, give, give without any kind of understanding or wisdom that you need to take care of your own practice in your own life as well. And then also if you were indifferent and you never gave, that wouldn't be wise either, that you would be practicing selfishness. So finding this middle way where you're willing to let go. 
interesting thing if you've ever experienced this with the Buddha's teaching here where he talks about they eat without having given and he talks about even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared it. Have you ever eaten a bowl of ice cream and that last bite just tastes so good for some reason? Or that last potato chip just tastes so wonderful and it arises certain pleasant feelings in the mind? When you observe that, take an effort to share that last potato chip or that last bite of ice cream. In situations where you would normally hold on to it because, oh, it just feels so good and there's this selfishness in the mind that wants to hold on to it, you can practice when you open a bag of chips or you open some food right away, you can offer it to somebody around you. And this is a way to train the mind to let go. Oftentimes with food, we become very selfish because of our animal existences in the past, we tend to hoard food. So one of the things that the Buddha is pointing to here and using food as an example is that if you share food, you'll see this generosity arising in the mind. I've been in situations where I've opened a bag of potato chips, I shared them in the group. By the time it got back to me, there was one potato chip. And I ate that potato chip and then I just got up and go bought another bag. And this is okay, where oftentimes we don't wanna do that. We don't wanna take the effort to do that or the energy to do that. So when you're in situations where giving and sharing is something that you can do, then go ahead and do that and make that a regular part of your day with a smile, with holding a door, with, doing things like this that you can potentially do in your life and by creating more space in your life where you're not go 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 all the time pursuing selfish desires you can make space for giving and sharing and helping others in your life and you'll see that this will arise joy in your life because as you eliminate craving desire attachment there's going to be more joy that arises in the mind what questions do you guys have on this it does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. Well, this is everything that I had planned to share with you guys today. So I will just thank all of you for joining in today's class and let you know about the future classes of what we've got going on. This Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation as a group in our group learning program. So you can attend live or you can listen to the replay in Facebook, YouTube or Zoom. And I'm sorry, Facebook, YouTube, or the podcast, you can watch the replay because loving kindness meditation needs to be learned and it needs to be practiced. So now that you understand how important it is, if you haven't yet learned that or you would like to do that together as a group, we'll be doing that together on Wednesday. And then next Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 15 of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This chapter is titled True Love, Love Without Attachment. Here I'm going to help you understand how oftentimes the unenlightened mind misunderstands craving desire attachment as love. Oftentimes we think that love hurts because we're not actually practicing true love. We're practicing craving desire attachment, which comes with wants and expectations. And when we don't get our wants and expectations, we think that the love is gone or that this relationship needs to end because we feel like we're no longer getting our expectations and wants fulfilled. And we think that that's the love. And now we can't love all beings and have this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. But when you understand what true love is, 
love without attachment where we can love unconditionally, then you can love all beings because you don't have any wants or expectations or cravings that you're wanting from an individual. So next week on Sunday, I'll be sharing chapter 15, true love, love without attachment and helping you learn how to love without attachment. And the same thing, you'll need to learn that intellectually, reflect on that, and then practice that more and more in all your relationships, whether it's with your life partner, your children, your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors and others, you can learn how to love all beings, not having expectations and wants and cravings and desires from each other. And I'll explain to you this word expectation because we tend to have expectations of people in the unenlightened state and we think that that's normal. So we're going to talk about wants versus needs and what's actually needed in relationships, helping you to see what unconditional love is more and more closely so that then you can practice it and see your personal professional relationships really blossom. So I'd like to welcome you all to join us for those future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you in a future class. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.